This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. A few months ago, I um, gave a talk in the city on the four bodhisattva vows and their relationship to uh, the four noble truths. And then a couple of weeks ago, and, and so I spoke about them generally, and then a couple of weeks ago I gave a talk on the, the first of the four bodhisattva vows, so I wanted to speak about the second. And desires are inexhaustible. I vowed to put an end to them. <clears throat> this is the, the wording that has... Um, come down to us from Chi Yi in the 6th century. He was the, uh, the founder of Tendai or Tantai Buddhism. And he was the first one to do a, a systematic a classification of all the, the teachings. And so these vows, the, the wording as we know them come, we think, from him. But Okumura, in his sensei, in his book, speaks of the original wording of the vows, which very much ties to the Four Noble Truths. And it's like this. I vow to enable people to be released from the truth of suffering. It's the first one. I vow to enable people to understand the truth of the origin of suffering. I vow to enable people to peacefully settle down in the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, and I vow to enable them to enter the cessation of suffering that is nirvana. And the Buddha himself said that the first noble truth is to be understood, the truth of suffering, and that the truth of the origin, the root of suffering, is to be abandoned. The truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized, and the path is to be developed. So this second noble truth of the root of suffering is to be abandoned. And we say desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to relinquish all desires, to put an end to them. Is that even possible? Is it desirable? Would I still be human if I don't have desires? Would I be like a, like a machine, you know, cold and unfeeling? Would I care? Would I be indifferent if I don't have desires? What if all your life you've been told that desires are bad? that what you want is bad or is not acceptable? Is this vow just more of the same? Does it encourage you to suppress, to deny, to, to sublimate? And of course, you know, the, the quick answer, in one sense the easy answer would be no, it, it doesn't. This vow is speaking about the kleshas, the afflictions, speaking about the ways in which we do create our own suffering, and is saying we can let go of this clinging. We can choose not to create this suffering. But when we set about 
practicing these vows, it's not, it's not so easy, I don't think. It's not always so clear how to do this. I mean, we have all felt sensual desire, for example, just that the desire for pleasure. Is it always to be avoided? Is it always to be let go of? Another way of asking this is, is sensual desire an affliction by definition? And in the sutras, it is. And I think the reason is because it it is so powerful, because it can so easily derail us. It is the most powerful force, desire. But is it possible to see it, to understand it, and to practice it in such a way that it is not an affliction? When you're standing downstairs by the bread table and you're about to eat that fourth piece, watching that desire, and these are the small desires. You start with the small ones first. Watching that desire arise, can you choose to just watch it rather than move you know, to, to fulfill it? Can you, can you let it do what all created things do? We were speaking about it yesterday briefly. Something arises, that thought, I want this. It persists for a moment. And if you do nothing, if you don't move toward it, and if you don't push it away, it passes. So why is it so difficult then to do that? In a moment when, when desire arises to ask, is this what I really want? Or is this just a stand-in for something else? Which is usually the case. There are those moments when we know exactly what we want, and then we, we get it, and it is so incredibly satisfying. But most of the time, we're not clear. There's, there's something happening. There's an unease. And there is something usually available close by, socially acceptable sometimes, that will, at the very least, take the edge of my discomfort, of that unease. Most, all, really, of our desires are unchanging. And, and they're moment, momentary, they're, they're fickle. A, a book came through D.C., um, by Mahasi Sayadaw, who was uh, one of Joseph Goldstein's teachers and who's a, a highly renowned meditation master, Indian, I, b- I believe. And he speaks of the, the very meticulous practice of noting your experience as the experience is happening. And so, for example, if you're sitting and you have the desire to stand up, to notice, I want to stand up. As you're standing, I am standing up. As you're fully upright, I'm upright. And moment to moment, they're, they're noting, in, in, in this practice, noting their experience. So nothing goes by um, unseen. Is it possible in a moment of desire arising to note, wanting, wanting, wanting? Is it possible to see that moment in which the wanting fades and how powerful that is. 
but of course, you know, the, the, it is impossible to do that unless we're, we slow down enough, unless we're quiet enough to even be willing to attempt this. To look uh, at our uh, ideas also of what we, we think, what will give us pleasure, fulfillment. Uh, Tara Brock was talking about somebody sent her a, a card in which there were two dolphins just swimming in the ocean, and one of them turns to the other and says, oh, you know, I would really love to swim with that investment banker. And the other one says, oh, yeah, I've heard that it's magical. <laughs> <laughs> Is what we want really what we want? And I think, in general, I think we would hopefully all agree there's nothing inherently wrong with desire. I mean, there is the desire to awaken. Something brought you here, and that was a desire. Desire to be happy, to be fulfilled, perhaps to serve others. But what about other desires? The desire to be loved, to be wanted, to love and want in return. Desire for well-being, for health, for some measure of comfort. And so what is the problem? And when do they become? When does a desire become an affliction? How do they become blinding and binding? Harmful. Deadly. That's happened in, in Orlando. How does somebody choose to kill 50 people in cold blood. To say, in effect, to them, what you are is wrong, what you want is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm simplifying it, certainly. I'm sure the killer's motives were, were many and complex. But he was, by his action, he was essentially saying to those 50 people and anybody else in that room, you do not matter. Or rather, you matter only insofar as you're a means to the fulfillment of my desire. My desire for retribution, my desire to make a statement, to leave a mark, my desire to correct a perceived wrong. And we can see this as as happening to someone else. And in a way, I think this is how we cope. It's It happened out there, certainly by someone not like me. If we were to to intimately feel the suffering of all beings, we most likely, we, we just couldn't bear it. So that distance protect, protects us from the pain. But of course, that distance is always a double-edged sword because it can also leave you... Um, cold and uncaring or, or, or believing that that is not me. I would never do that. And I'm certainly not implying you know, that we're all killers inherently. But the, the mechanism by which a, a series of events leads to what happened that night is in, is in fact in all of us. We all have the capacity to turn another into an object and therefore dispensable. 
And unfortunately, we do it all the time in small and sometimes large ways. You know, and as, as this was happening, I was having a, an email exchange with a, with a student in the city who um, was bringing up the, the Dalai Lama's views on homosexuality. And historically, he has just said, it's wrong. There is no uh, purpose to it. It's not for the purpose of, of procreation, and so it's wrong. And that's changed over time. He was really, he was taken to task by some, and so it's, it's changed. And so now he says, well, you know, if two people are consenting, it's, it's fine. But really, in terms of Buddhism, it's still wrong, and, and it really should be up to, I believe he said, each state and to religions to determine that. And the student was saying, well, you know, there's, it's, it's so easy then to internalize that hatred, to have it become self-hatred. What if your, your identity, this person asked, is based on a difference of desire? And you're still being told that it's wrong at its best. At its worst, you're being wiped out, literally. How do we understand abandoning the root of suffering in this context? How do we not turn that hatred and aggression into self-hatred and self-aggression, whether it's based on gender and sexual orientation or race or age, which, whether we like it or not, does shape our identity. And, and, And it's not enough to say, well, there is no self and we're all one. There's no race, no class. That's not true. From the perspective of the absolute, that is true, but we don't live in the absolute. Nobody lives there. So how do we not see the self-hatred conditioned and then internalize it to further deny our desires or to not even acknowledge that we have them? How do we not make them invalid? You know, and unfortunately, we were having this exchange through email. We were discussing whether we should discuss this at the, um, one of the LGBTQ meetings in the city. And I was dismissive, unintentionally, certainly, but I was dismissive. And I read back through, I, I was thinking, I remember thinking in my mind, who cares what the Dalai Lama thinks or the Pope or anybody else? You know, I'm living my life and the way that I see is most affirming and, and loving, so who cares? And I didn't say it that way, but my response reflected that. I was basically saying, do, do we really need to discuss this? He, that's not our view. And I read back over the exchange, and I realized I was also preoccupied with something else I needed to tell the group. And so I didn't see the student, what their concern was at all. I was really just thinking about me in that moment. And this is how we turn desire into suffering, I feel. In, in, in that moment, in an instant, where all you see is yourself and your want. You can't see the other. Or you see them, as I said, just as a, as a tool to fulfill your own want. So there's no, no other except in relationship to you, what they can give you, what they can offer you, do for you. And when I see that this is what I do, and I've done it before, it is painful. It's very painful. But not seeing it is worse. 
because then it is easy to believe that there are other, others who are out there who are not me, and really they are there just to help me move along in this life. You know, they're just puzzle, pieces to my puzzle. And so when they don't fulfill my needs, well, why? I mean, I can just push them aside, or ignore them at the very least. Remember those of you who were here several years ago now, you know, when Shugen Sensei gave that talk after Trayvon Martin was shot, and he said George Zimmerman at that moment was not seeing his, uh, Trayvon, he was seeing his mind. This is what, what prejudice and fear thrives on, hatred, on that selective blindness. Actually, it's more active than that, and often it's, a, it's an active erasure of the other. And most of the time, it is more innocuous. I was writing a, a press release for a book, a poetry book, and uh, Mary Stuart Hammond is her, her name, and she's talking about really being disregarded. In a, in a poem called The Art of Passing for Them, she's describing being at a, at a gala, and it's benefiting literature in some form. She's a poet and she's been invited, except she says she's not one of them, meaning the people who have the money, who are giving the money. And so she's speaking about being next to uh, a man who's sitting next to her, and she's passing as part of his group, if you will. And they're talking about you know golf to begin with, and they're talking about... Um, his expensive wife and his kids, and um, he says oh, horrible people, teachers. He's complaining about teachers, and and then he turns to her and says, "Horrible! I, I hope you, that you don't know one." And she says, "Since I am one, I know that I'm passing." And she says, "It must be the pearls, the off the cold, off the shoulder dress." And they start, you know, they go on talking, and she's very carefully avoiding saying what she does for a living because she knows that the moment she says she's a poet, he will stop seeing her. And so he talks for a while about himself, and then it comes to him to ask her what she does for a living. And she says, well, I... First of all, she's surprised. She says, "Um, women over 40 are rarely asked this question by men. They know what we do. We do our hair, lunch, our nails. We shop, they think. Double entendre that. And she says, yes, I'm stereotyping you, but I'm the one with a pen, with a computer, writing history in an off-the-shoulder dress. And then finally, she's, she's cornered and she has, says that she's a writer. She says, well, what kind of writer? She says, well, I'm a sports writer. He can understand that, so they start talking about basketball and football. And, and um, she says, well, not, I'm not that kind of sports writer. And she says, well, what kind? And she says, with a question mark, yet... Races, because she knows that that's not going to sound, you know, real as sports writing goes. She says it, it does not sound like a real sport to anyone who has never covered yacht races on 50 foot boats in the middle of the Atlantic in gale force winds with 30 feet following seas and seven men as the second most dangerous sport of all. And she says, I explained this, so when we get to the start of the poem, when I say I'm a poet, you know I'm not a girly poet. 
I'm not a macho poet either, like those guys who write about food and babies when girls can't. It labels you minor if you're a girl, but not if you're a guy. Poets are just regular, normal, neurotic human beings. And then he finally says to her, well, are you still doing that? Covering yet races? And she says, no, I'm doing something more dangerous. What's that? Of course, he asks. And she says, I'm a poet. <laughs> she says, there, I've, I've said it. And there you have it. The poem's whole apologia provita sua. You with your eyes emptying. Me left sitting next to your suit. I tug on its sleeve. Please get back in your body. At least talk to the pearls, the off-the-shoulder dress. And it is innocuous in this, this, this moment of... So he's not seeing her. But is it, really? And at the same time, you know, and I acknowledge it, it's uncomfortable, you know, to talk about this. And just as I'm not implying that we're all killers, I'm not implying that all men do this. But we all do it at some point or other. And that, that discomfort of being, in a sense, called out, even, or of seeing yourself and calling yourself out, is a fraction of the discomfort that the person who's being erased feels that the person who's being oppressed feels. So, in, so to be able to tolerate that discomfort of, of what we do or fail to do, I think it's, it's crucial in order to live a, a life that is awake. A Theravada teacher, Bhikkhu Nananda, says, taking the elements to be the self is misappropriation of public property. I like that. You could also say, you know, taking the other to be me is misappropriation of, it's not quite the right word, but of individual property of, um, uh, I had thought of a different word before, of singular property or singular identity. So in other words, to not, again, make the, the mistake of just painting everything with a, with a brush and saying, well, you and I are the same thing, and you are me. Because that's not always true. And, and to not turn that into that narrowness of focus, really, where the only thing I see is me, or sort of a projection of me onto the environment. That is, that is not what we mean by identity. And Dongshan said, wherever I look, I see it, but it is not me. It is not other, either. And then what is it? What is it, and what does it have to do with me? And what does it tell me about how to live a life without hurting others? Or to minimize that hurt. We were speaking about the undivided life this weekend. How do we live a life where we're not torn apart or where we wittingly or unwittingly tear someone else apart? But of course, there's always the other side. Again, you know, our desire's always self-centered. Then what makes someone like Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut stand on the floor for almost 15 hours straight speaking to convince Congress to at least consider more stringent laws on gun control 
did he lose someone to violence himself? Or did he just care? He said he had enough. He, had, he said he had enough of, of people dying and Congress not doing anything about it, basically. Does he understand that when a group of children dies, when a group of young adults dies, when a group of adults in church dies, as happened in Charleston yesterday or day before, a year ago, that we all die a little also, or a lot? And it made me think of that, that simile of the four horses, very well-known simile in, in Buddhism that, that the Buddha presented. The version I found here was in what's called the Patoda Sutta, the, the goad stick sutta. And he's basically saying that there's the, someone who's, who's awake, who's resolute, who wants to wake up to the question of life and death, that there's different degrees of that. And that the horse that moves just at the shadow of the whip is like someone who hears of a death in another village. And that arouses their aspiration to, to wake up to life and death. There's a horse who moves when the whip touches their skin, their hide. And it's like someone who sees death in their own village, and that gets them going. Then there's a horse that moves only when the whip breaks their skin, and that is like someone who sees a family member, a loved one, die. And then there's a ho- the horse that only moves when the, the whip gets to their bone. That's when you are under threat of dying. And Dido would always add that fifth horse is just dead. You can't get them to pull it together. They, they never get around to wondering, what is this all about? But I don't know if that's if the fifth horse actually exists. I think we're just good at looking the other way. And the Buddha said that understanding the truth of, of suffering, and it's it's a, that not understanding it. Sorry, that not understanding the truth of suffering, the cessation and the path is like a frightful precipice. It's like being this is my version, in a car speeding full tilt towards a precipice, you know, the, the windshield facing the void, and everybody in the car is you know, drinking soda and eating potato chips and watching a movie. This isn't really happening. It's not happening to me. Not yet. But, you know, a, a horse that is slumbering always always has the opportunity to wake up, to rouse themselves by turning to another, basically. That's the first vow. You know, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. In, in, in that moment of, of, of self, um, where all you see is yourself, if, if there is enough room or, or remembrance of something to just turn to another, that can be enough to break the spell, to start at least. And I came across this, this story of, um, his name is Oli Neal. He's the, one of the judges in the Court of Appeals in Arkansas 
who, as he was growing up, it was everybody was worried that he was just going to end up in prison. He was he was really um, aggressive, and you could say insolent in, in school. He made one of his teachers cry. Uh, her name was um, Mildred, Mildred Grady, and they just thought there, there's no way he's going to make it even past high school. She became the librarian in college in college, I believe. No, it may actually still have been high school. And one day he went to the library and he hated reading or or really doing any of the the work. But for some reason, there was a book on the shelf with a picture of a sexy woman on the cover that drew his eye. And so he he pulled it out and it was a novel called Treasure of Pleasant Valley by Frank Yerby. And he read it and he really liked it. And this, is, this was literature, it wasn't pulp fiction. Um, and he really liked it. Oh, he thought he wanted to take it home to read, but he didn't want to be seen with a book by his friends. And so he stole it. He put it under his shirt and he took it home. He read it the next week, I think he comes back, goes to the library and sees on the shelf another book by Yerby. So he steals that. Four times he did this, and every time there was this one book by Yerby. And he caught what he describes the, the, the reading bug. And he started reading Camus, and he, started, he went to law school and became a judge. And then at a school reunion, he ran into Mildred Grady. And she said to him, I, noticed, I knew that, you, that you'd stole. He confessed to her. He said, you know, I'm so sorry, I, I stole that book. And she said, yeah, I know. She said, I put those books there for you. And then he realized, you know, as the conversation was going on, they didn't have those books. She was driving 70 miles each week, buying the books with her money on her own time and planting them so that he would read them. Uh, 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 the boy who had made her cry who someone else might have been like, you know, forget you. I mean, who, who knows where you're going to end up? I don't want to have anything to do with you. And she did not give up on him. And, you know, there was nothing in it for her. Or was there? I vow to enable beings to understand the truth of the origin of suffering. You know, in that moment, she saw Neil, she saw what he needed and just gave it to him without thought, without um, hesitation, and without even knowing how it was going to turn out. I mean, it could have been he reads the books and he still ends up in jail. But, and this is a question I've, I've asked before, how do you see when you do not see or what you do not see. You know, I, I would often ask myself, why do writers repeat themselves? You, you read Murakami, and it's really the same story. Slightly different characters. It's really, he's writing the same story. I have a collection by Flannery O'Connor, and it's the same story told from slightly different angles. And then somebody lent me a book where a, where a writer is speaking to a fledgling writer, and says to her, don't worry about your story. Each one of us has our story. Each one of us has the one 
thing we're trying to make sense of and usually be freed of. This seeing and being seen is my story. Whether it's seeing a, 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 another thing or a person, but especially a person. Both because, like one of the monks in, in the koans, because this is where I still need to apply effort, but also because I think it's the, the, the basis of all the work that we do. We can't be intimate with something that we do not see. That's impossible. And we can't see the other when all we have in front of our eyes is ourselves. So how do we see what we cannot see? I think, <clears throat> I think we have to do what is very difficult to do, which is to be willing to get messy you know, and be hurt, to, to not protect ourselves. Because that shield, of course, is a cover for the arrows that are coming in, that are coming my way. But it's also very effective in blocking anything out, blocking me from seeing anything. And so that willingness to meet and be met by another perhaps is the whole thing. Perhaps is the whole thing, but it can be very, very tender, can't it? Tignahan, the wording, his wording for this vow is however inexhaustible the states of suffering are, I vow to touch them with patience and love. However varied and unending my afflictions, I vow to meet them gently and patiently, lovingly. I vow to not turn away from them. I find this very difficult to do. You know, I would much rather dispatch them quickly. Just square things away and out of the way. Thankfully, I have someone to help me slow down and to stay what is very difficult to stay with. Pema Chodron describes during a retreat, I think she was with a friend of hers who was going through very severe uh, reliving of past trauma. And this woman asked uh, Pema to sit with her, basically, just through the night. And Pema Chodron describes uh, sitting with her friend, just holding her hands, looking her in the eyes, and just saying, stay, stay, stay. That's all she did all night, is just be that anchor for this, for her friend. And that is valid. That is helpful, important, necessary to get help along the way, to allow someone to help you witness what at times feels unbearable. Before, because before we can let anything go, we have to take it up. We have to see it fully. We need to know our desires inside and out, to not be afraid of them, to not judge them. That's a big one for most of us. You know, and I'm not saying you just go out and do whatever you want. You know, Suisse said desires are fine, you know. But it really is to understand the truth, the truth of the origin of suffering. We have desires. 
We're human beings, so we have desires. And how do they lead then to suffering? How do I not be led around by them? Because someone just told me, you know, there's, there's a man galloping um, full tilt through a, a busy city street on a horse. And someone says to him, where are you going? He says, I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> How many times that is us? Really, think about a moment where you're, 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 you're um, possessed by your desire. So let me humbly offer a, another version of this vow. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to regard them fully and respectfully. Which perhaps is not different from saying about to meet myself and to meet you fully and respectfully. I vow to not turn people into categories. To not divide things into what is useful and disposable, what is sacred and not sacred. I vow to not let my life unfold at the cost of your life. I vow to not use you. I vow to not use you. So most of us would not take a gun and go into a movie theater, a church, a school, a club, or take a flying plane or a bomb and kill a group of people. But how do we not use one another? The second Bodhisattva vow, I think, is saying, I will, I will not do that anymore. I will see when I do, and I vow not to. I vow to see you fully as a being who never fails to, fall the, to, to fill the ground upon which it stands, as Master Dogen said. I will see you as being worthy of my regard, my respect, my reverence even. And I will see you as male, as female, young or old, black or brown or white or any other shade. And I will see you with all all of those qualities, all of your property, all of your karma, your appearance. And I will remember that none of that is you. And most importantly, that you are not a threat to my existence. That I don't need to attack you or possess you or brainwash you. That I can let you be you and you can let me be me. Because, yes, we are the same and we are different. I vow to not hide behind the dharma of oneness and pretend that if I just work hard enough to realize it, we'll all get along. We only will get along if we understand how oneness and multiplicity work together. How all things do arise at once. Parmenides said that, and he was actually a contemporary of the Buddha. Maybe he, I think he was the first Westerners to, to, Westerner to say that. I shall not let thee say that what is comes from what is not. And then he asks, you know, if, if, that, if, if you could have something arise from nothing, what would make it arise now as opposed to later? Or, or why would just 
some things not be there and then appear afterwards. He says, therefore, all things arise together or not at all. Shugen Sensei has been saying that in relationship to us and the earth. So what you and I want is the same, and it's different. And how do we put the two together? Not taking that fourth piece of bread may seem so insignificant in the scheme of things. But just take that mindset, or take the mindset of taking the fourth piece of bread. If you're the CEO of Monsanto, for example, and you think that you're what you have is what you've earned and what is good for others from your perspective. What if what you're, you're acquiring, you're getting in that moment is the product of someone else's exploitation? Then it's not so insignificant. That's why the practice of Oriyoki is just the right amount I find so incredibly powerful. And it's not just during Sashin. It's not even just during meals. Its application, its reach, I think, is is vast. What do I actually need? What do I want? And how does this affect you? These are some of the questions that we can ask. And it's just the beginning. But you can't travel a path without taking one step. And so in those moments where it feels, and it is, in fact, if we're feeling it, if we're, if we're paying attention, it, it should feel overwhelming. I think that would be a natural response to be, to be in one way, torn asunder by, by what we can do to each other. But there are these vows there is what we can do. And that in any given moment, any given moment, we can turn towards or we can turn away from. We always have that choice. I know it doesn't always feel that way, but we always have that choice. And in the moment where you realize, oh, I couldn't, to without guilt, without recrimination, say, okay, I couldn't then. I vow to do it now. And again, I vow to do it. I vow to turn to you rather than away from you. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.